The Human Race is proudly brought to you by Alivet. Support babies' healthy development at every stage. The Human Race podcast discusses subjects that will be upsetting for some, including infertility, miscarriage and stillbirth. Support is available. Check the show description for details. Kia ora and welcome to The Human Race, a podcast about those who are in the race of their lives to create a life. My name's Nadine Higgins. I'm a broadcaster, a journalist, and for the past four years and counting, I've been trying to make a baby with my husband. That's me. I'm Dan. And we reckon infertility is lonely enough without making it a dirty little secret. So we wanted to bring you stories from those people that have been through it. So even if you don't want to talk about it, maybe those stories can give you hope or at the very least make you feel a little less alone. This is a collab podcast between Stuff and Wabi Sabi Media. Kelly Addison spent every day of her pregnancy spewing. She gritted her teeth through a complicated labour and at the end of all that, she handed the baby over to someone else. Kelly is one of a small number of selfless Kiwi women who've been a surrogate to help make someone else's baby dreams come true. Kia ora Kelly and welcome to the human race. Kia ora. So I want to start off with what I think is probably one of the biggest questions. What made you want to become a surrogate? That's a question everyone asks me and it's a question I don't really have an answer to. I just thought it was a nice thing to do and if you can help someone you should. I never particularly had any burning desire to have my own children. However, as far as I was aware, um, I had a fully functioning uterus and if someone else could get use out of that, then that would be great. So as you said, I was a surrogate three years ago, which resulted in a beautiful baby for a Blenheim couple, and I am currently five weeks pregnant with a baby for the next couple. Oh, wow. Different couple. Wow. Okay, we're going to get to the fact that you're doing it again in just a second, but that's very exciting. They must be delighted. They are. They're really thrilled. They have a four-year-old little girl who was also born via surrogacy. Um, So yeah, nice to create a sibling. So, doing it again, you you didn't have the easiest pregnancies in the world. Um, Did you have any idea how hard it would be on the outset? I mean, like, spewing for nine months is no easy feat. Yeah, I guess it's like anything. Like, it was pesky at the time, but then it's over and you kind of forget about it. So, my mum, who has four children, had horrendous pregnancies. Like, her hair fell out, her teeth fell out. She vomited multiple times a day for nine months. And I'm the oldest of four And after she had me, her obstetrician told her that her body really wasn't cut out for having children and she shouldn't have any more. And she felt that no man was going to tell her how many kids she should have. So she went on and had three more. I love the sound of your mum. She's like, no man's going to tell me what to do. (laughs) So, um, So that was my benchmark. Like I thought that's as bad as it can get. But I mean, I'm nearly 40. So I'm like, that was 40 years ago. Medical science has probably come really far since then. Um, And yeah, while I did more or less vomit every day, it was generally only once or twice a day and it was only in the evening. So I never got morning sickness. It always kicked in around kind of three or four in the afternoon and went through to about 11.30 midnight. So I was really lucky in the fact that I could get up at 6am and do my job till like two or three and then call it a day and deal with the pregnancy stuff after that. You are so pragmatic to the point where I feel like you're understating how hard this was. Like, oh, I spewed every day, but it was only sort of a few hours in the evening. Yeah, I was really lucky because I didn't, there was a lot of vomiting, but I didn't have a lot of nausea. Like I did have some, but it was generally, I would just eat and it would come back up and then 
at it again and it was just kind of like a repeat cycle. It was almost like I had no gag reflex. Um, so if I coughed, I vomited. When I brushed my teeth, I vomited. When I ate, I vomited. Um, but, yeah, it was fine. Like I knew what I was getting myself into and it's like, I don't know, interim goal kind of stuff, right? Like it was nine months to a healthy baby. You can do anything for nine months. Wow. That's just that was so, my theory. You're so, so chilled about it. You know, just nine months of hell and then we're, we're good to go. I feel like they say to you at the gym, you can do anything for 30 seconds. I, I don't know that I could do anything for nine months. I mean, yeah, when the – so the first transplant we had didn't take. Um, so we reset and went again a month later. Um, and when I found out I was pregnant – it was funny because when I was going through the process, my biggest fear was actually labour, like how it was going to get out. My mum had also had horrific labours that lasted for days. Um, but when I actually got pregnant, it was like all of that went away because I was like, well, it's in now it's coming out whether I want it to or not. So <laughs> it was kind of, yeah, it, I guess I am a very practical person. So to me, it was like, cool, I've committed to this. So now I have to follow through with it. And then once I was actually pregnant, I was like, huh, too late if I didn't want this to happen. Like even this time around. Well, we were really lucky with the first transfer took. So, like, five weeks pregnant, you take off two. Basically, we found out two and a half weeks ago that I was pregnant. And when I, like, got that positive pregnancy test back, I was like, oh, do I really want to do this again? And I was like, whoops, too late now. Moving on. <laughs> You're like, it's all right, only nine months. <laughs> yeah. I can do this. Exactly. Like, if you think that, I don't know, the average person lives to, like, 75 or 80, like, what's nine months of your life? It's honestly nothing. I need to just capture some of this positivity that you Next have. time you complain about something, you're like, well, I mean, Kelly spewed every day for nine months. What do you have to complain about? I guess one of the things I wanted to explore a little bit more with you is, as you said, you don't have kids, not necessarily particularly interested in having your own kids. And most people go, well, how are you a candidate to be a surrogate? Because the assumption is you have to have been a mother and be done with your family to pass the ethics approval process. But you're living proof that that's just not the case. Yeah, so I think the really key thing there is you have to be done with your family. And being done with your family doesn't mean you have to have finished having kids. Um, so basically when we went into the counselling phase, um, I would have been 35, I think, when we started the process with Honour. And I'm not... I think there's a real misconception that if you don't have kids, you don't like kids. I actually really like kids. I have seven nieces and nephews, um, and I have a bunch of friends with kids that I spend a lot of time with. And I'm not anti-kids. If I met someone and that was important to them, then I'd be like, especially now, I'd be like, yeah, I've done it twice. How hard can one more time be? <laughs> but, yeah, if I met someone who kids was really important to, then absolutely I'd entertain the idea of having a child. But it's not – for me, it was never – something that was kind of on my list of life achievements. And so it just seemed like, honestly, it seemed like a waste. Like there's so many people that kind of need the bits and don't have them, and I have the bits and I don't want them. So it kind of seemed like basic math to match those two things up. Do you think that if more people knew that you could be a surrogate without necessarily having had your children, called time on having your own family – that maybe more women would become surrogates? A hundred percent. So part of it was my age. So I was deemed old enough to be able to respectfully make that choice. So you couldn't go in as a 21 or a 22-year-old and say, I don't want children, I want to be a surrogate. I think that would be a lot harder to get ECAD approval for. Um, they basically deemed me like kind of mature enough to have made that, um, that decision. And it is, I think, 
the reason why you have to have finished having your family is because if something goes wrong during the pregnancy or the birth and you have to have, say, an emergency hysterectomy and then that means you can never have a children after that, that puts that process of handing the surrogate baby over kind of in jeopardy. So imagine if you were carrying a child for someone and then you gave birth and something went wrong and you realised you could never have your own kids again, then that could very dramatically change the way you feel about the baby you've just had. Um, So, you know, that's purely the reasoning behind it. It's a protection thing for the surrogate and for the intended parents. So, Kelly, you you just mentioned the ECART approval. What is that? So ECART is the Ethics Committee for Assisted Reproductive Technology, which is basically a board of people um, who you have to send a very complicated application into, and they go through, they look at all sorts of things, um, your mental health, your like financial situation, your job situation, your family situation, whether you have a partner, and they do the same for the intended parents. And then they basically decide whether, I guess, you're both in the right place to proceed with a surrogacy agreement. So they obviously gave you that tick. They've given it to you twice. But what reaction do you get from other people when you're like, I don't have my own kids, but I'm growing this kid for someone else? Or do do you not tell anybody? Do you just get pregnant, turn up to work, and how does that work? That's a really interesting question. Yeah, it was hard to explain to people. So I was brought up Catholic, um, so my mum's quite Catholic. I'm, it's... It's disintegrated as we've gone through the generations. But, um, you know, my my mum's still Catholic and still, you know, attends church and stuff. And so when I spoke to her about it, it was a bit for her to get her head around um, because it's obviously not the traditional way of having a child. She, like I said, I have seven nieces and nephews, so I was actually pregnant at the same time as one of my sisters. So she kind of questioned what that would be like to see me become more and more pregnant, to hear about how I was going and then have nothing at the end of it. Um, And, yeah, I just guess her main question was kind of around that idea of if it's not meant to happen, maybe it's not meant to happen. But then my argument was that's kind of the same in surrogacy. Like, you can do all the science in the world, but if it's not going to work, it's not going to work. And sometimes it just doesn't. So I just said to her, but isn't that the same thing? Like, if it's not going to work, it's not going to work. And she was like, yeah, I guess you're right. Um, The biggest response I get from people is twofold. It's either, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing that. You're so amazing, which is lovely, but you get sick of really fast. Or the other really unhelpful response that I got probably from 50% of people is, oh my God, you can't do that. I would never do that. And I was like, cool. So first of all, I'm not killing someone. Like I'm just having a baby. (laughs) And secondly, cool, it's got nothing to do with you because I'm the one having the baby. So I don't really care whether you would do that or not. Like, There's no response here. Like, where do we go from that conversation? Do you call them out and say that? Yeah, like I said, I mean, it depends on who you were. There were, like, people at work that I'd be like, cool, I'm just going to go over here now. (laughs) But And then there are other people that I'd be like, you know, I mean, that's cool, but at the end of the day it's kind of my choice and my body and it's something I'm happy to do and, you know, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but if it is, then... Great. Doesn't really affect you. Everyone's got an opinion. Everyone does. Especially when it comes to reproduction, right? You know, everyone wants to stick their oar in. Yeah. But yeah, overwhelmingly people were really positive, almost um, to the point where they were over the top positive. Like I actually wished I hadn't told people about it as soon as I did. 
um, because it was a lot of, oh, my God, you're amazing. Tell me all about it. And you're like, oh, God, okay. Like, it's lovely that people want to know and it's lovely to talk about it. Um, but, yeah, I guess there were people that you're kind of friends or family with or that you're close to that you're happy to talk about. It. But then there's a lot of discussing your life with strangers as well, mm. which is not something I do naturally. So, but, yeah, I mean, so I guess um, starting the process, um, how did you match with your first couple, Stacey and Robbie? So Stacey and Robbie came to me through Tony Street. So Tony Street went public with her surrogacy journey once she was sort of down the track. And Tony and I had actually had a conversation right at the beginning of surrogacy because my biggest concern was with surrogacy was always the actual labour getting it out part. So I was like, who do I know that will tell me that as it really is? And I was like... Tony will tell me real, that as it really is. Yeah, so I sat down and had a chat with Tony. Um, and so she sort of knew I was interested and she was like, oh my gosh, this is quite amazing because we've just made the decision to go on this journey as well. And turns out I had actually looked into surrogacy quite extensively before I had the conversation to Tony. So she was like, what about this? And I was like, oh, I know the answer for that. Oh, here are the questions they're going to ask. Oh, here's the <laughs> ECAT stuff. Um, and so that was fine. So we had an initial conversation and then once Tony obviously got to a certain point in her journey, that became quite public in the New Zealand media. Um, and there was a woman down in Blenheim who read Tony's Instagram story and never in her life has messaged anyone she doesn't know on Instagram, but just felt really moved to message Tony and say, hey, it's really amazing to read stories like this in uh, like New Zealand. It's really great to know that this is possible. Um, if my husband, like, you know, I had endometriosis and I had a hysterectomy and if my husband and I want to have children, this is a path we're going to go down. And Tony read that message and she said, you know, if you have any tips or advice, let me know. Otherwise, I wish you all the best of luck. So it was a super neutral, non-stalking kind of message. Um, and so Tony saw that and thought of me and came to me and said, hey, this woman's got in touch. Um, I don't know her but friends of mine know her, you know, and they like her. Like, would you like me to connect the two of you? Um, you know, like, I'm happy to pass on your details. And I thought, yeah, why not? Like, if I don't like her, I just won't do it. Yeah. <laughs> and so how do you get to that point that you decide these are the people that we want to help, they're the ones that I'm going to pick? Yeah, do you have a criteria? Is there a checklist? 100% had a criteria. Don't know if it's the kind of thing you want to talk about on a podcast. <laughs> But, oh, definitely, definitely. Tell us. Gotta wait for the comments to roll on. It. <laughs> so, I had two criteria for surrogates. One was that they didn't have big heads because I was concerned about the size <laughs> of the baby's head. Hey, just before we jump into this, I'm going to get out my tape measure and just uh, put it around your skull. Like, I mean, it was more of a look at them engaged thing, but um, yeah, I was very concerned about that whole like. I always knew I wanted a natural birth. Like, I was really anti a C-section. Obviously, if I'd needed a C-section, then you would have just done it. But I really wanted to give birth naturally. So yeah, two criteria. One was that they didn't have big heads because um, I didn't want a big-headed baby, um, and the second one was that they were pro-vaccination. So I didn't want anyone that I was going to carry a child for for nine months and then it was going to accidentally die of a completely preventable disease like coping cough. So, yeah, and then it's – because I've actually gone down this road with four couples. Um, Like I've I've met four couples in person to see if they would be potential surrogates. And some of them had enormous heads and that was that. (laughs) (laughs) It was an easy first meeting. You're like, oh, I it's going to work. Probably the largest heads of the couple I'm currently pregnant with right now. And they're still very normal size, but they're slightly larger than the last baby. But, no, um, so Stacey and her mum were up in Auckland um, because they had some medical treatment and I met them 
uh, in a break while I was at work, which is very unfortunate because I was in charge of the media phone that day and something was going down and so my phone was ringing every 15 minutes and I was trying to have this like 45 minute catch up with them. But no, I just liked them straight away. Like they were really nice. They were really normal. Um, we were on the same page. We agreed about a lot of things. They were quite relaxed about the process. Like this is kind of what they were hoping for, but I felt they had quite realistic expectations about the outcome. The first time I did it, I was really, really keen. Like I was definitive that I was only going to do it for someone that had no children because I thought there are just so many people that want kids. I can't justify doing it for a couple that already has a child when there's such a big line. Um, so they obviously filled their criteria. Uh, you know, they both had great jobs. They seemed like nice people. I knew that they they lived near, they had family close to them, so her mum lives just down the road, which was quite important to me, that the child would be brought up in like a family environment. Um, so that was really cool. And then, yeah, we just got on. And then I met, they came up a second time, um, and I met her and her husband and it was a similar thing, like, uh, Robbie's great, he's super easy to talk to, really chilled, really relaxed, and it's quite, surrogacy is a bizarrely intimate journey, like, never in my life would I discuss the things with Stacey and Robbie with any of my other friends, mainly because half of them are gross, but, um, <laughs> yeah, but I think it's, I don't know, I, I assume, having not found anyone I want to marry, but I assume... It's like many things in life. When you know, you know. Um, and I just knew that they were the right people and I knew it would work. I mean, where are the boundaries in this process? Because like you say, it's by its very nature very intimate. But are they like in your grill every day being like, how's my baby? Or is it a bit more distance than that? That's a big part of the ethics uh, of, of the kind of... So the first time I did it, um, we went through Fertility Associates. This baby's been done through Fertility Plus. Um, but that's a big part of the work that fertility associates do with you. So it really is that you do two sessions of individual counselling and then you come together and do a, a couple's counselling. Um, so there is a lot of conversation in that around how much communication is too much. It's really, really difficult, I think. And I feel for the, the IPs or the intended parents, as they're called in the surrogacy arrangement, because that person desperately wants to get pregnant and carry their own baby. It's not like you're doing, it's not like you're washing their car and they don't really want to do it themselves. Like this is something that they would move heaven and earth to do themselves, but they've had to come to this realisation that they can't. You know, with um, with the first couple, obviously, it, she had had a hysterectomy due to endometriosis, so it was there was no chance that we're accidentally going to get pregnant. Like they'd always known that this was the path that they needed to go down. And so you have to balance your own personal boundaries with understanding that you are carrying the most precious thing in someone else's life. But at the same time, for your surrogate, it is a moment in time. So I took a week off after I had the baby. So Anna was born on Tuesday morning. I went back to work the following Monday. So it was really important for me to ensure that I kept my life going because that baby wasn't the finite end for me. I always felt it was a bit like a relay race, like out it would come, I'd pass it over, tag, I'm out kind of thing. <laughs> it's very true though. It is just for you. It is that moment in time and, and you do have to continue with your life moments after it. Right? Yeah, and you probably think about being pregnant 10% of the time. 
Because when you're pregnant yourself and that's your baby, I think, um, I would imagine if you are a person pregnant and having a child for yourself that it's not so much the pregnancy that's occupying your mind, it's the future and it's the possibility of what comes with that pregnancy. So you're thinking about bedroom furniture, you're thinking about cute clothes, you're thinking about the life that that unborn child is going to have, which, you know, obviously is why things like miscarriage are so horrific because it's not the fact that you've lost an eight-week-old baby, it's the fact that you've lost all of the hopes and dreams that you've built around that child. And so as a surrogate, it's really difficult because you are carrying someone else's hopes and dreams and you want to balance that. Like I want... I wanted the first couple and I want the second couple to be part of the pregnancy. But at the same time, it's not taking over my life. Like I still have a full-time job. I still have family with children who think that it's their right to have a free babysitter in me. I still have <laughs> friends and, you know, friends and family that I want to catch up with. So you are balancing so many other things. And when you are with your friends and when you're with your family, the pregnancy is not the topic of conversation because those people are all a further step again removed from it. Whereas obviously as the couple, you're sitting at home, not feeling anything, not knowing what's happening, but it's this big, massive life-changing event and you don't want that person to feel like they're not involved. Yeah. But at the same time, you don't want to fall in an abscess where this pregnancy is everything because you're aware that you have to keep the rest of your life going because you need to be able to just pick it up when it's done. Oh, it's such a tricky balance to strike. I, I, I want to talk to you about the labour because you were terrified about it. Until I was pregnant. Then I was like, oh, well, this is happening. <laughs> but then by the sounds of it, it, it did actually end up kind of, I mean, challenging doesn't really cover it. Were you not in labour for three days? I wasn't in labour for three days. It just took three days. So what happened was... <laughs> What's the difference? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, in my opinion, nothing, but I'm sure people that have actually been in labour for three days would have a very different opinion. So my waters broke on Sunday morning at 3.30 in the morning. Like I woke up, rolled over, knew what was going to happen, and they broke in the bathroom, which is very convenient for cleanliness. Absolutely. That's not how it happens in the movies. No, it's also nothing like it happens in the movies. So my flatmate, who conveniently works at the hospital and is also conveniently my cousin and a nurse, um, drove us into the hospital and was like, I'm going to pop to my office and do some work for an hour. You get the heartbeat done and then we'll grab dinner on the way home. So then what happened is there were a number of emergency labours at Auckland Hospital that night. So we got there, I think, at about six o'clock, but it wasn't until like 11.30 that someone came in to see me. Um, and I happened to get a well-meaning but potentially slightly overzealous doctor who was like, no, you can't go home, like we'll induce you at 3.30 in the morning, that's 24 hours. The charge nurse was standing behind the doctor shaking her head like, no, 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 we won't, we won't. And I said to her, look, my flatmate works at the hospital and she starts at 5.30. Like I will go home and I will come back with her, at, like I'll be ready to go at 5.30 and she's like, no, you can't go. Now, with hindsight, I would have been like, cool, I'm leaving and I'll see you tomorrow morning. But at the time, I was like, oh, God, it's not my baby and it's the first baby. Like, imagine if I went and something went wrong. Did you know that one in four people in Aotearoa, New Zealand, experience infertility? And it can be an incredibly challenging journey. Surgery, tests, drugs, specialists, diet... Many people try many things to give themselves a fighting chance of having a baby. 
Elevit is a preconception and pregnancy multivitamin and mineral supplement. It's specifically formulated to help meet the increased nutritional needs of women trying to conceive and those fortunate enough to get pregnant. Elevit is available at leading pharmacies. For more information, head to elevit.co.nz. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, what, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line there. That, that, I think it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, yeah we're, we're, I'm not worried about it at all. Nothing iffy in there. On. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts. pushing hasn't even started and it's already sounding like... Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, they came and took me in and on Monday at about 4.30 in the afternoon, 5 o'clock, and she hooked me up, started the induction and was like, right, can I get you anything? And I was like, oh, my gosh, yes, can you please find me something to eat? Like, I've now been here over 24 hours or nearly 24 hours and I'm starving. Like, I haven't eaten in a day. And she goes, oh, did no one tell you? You can't eat when you're being induced. And I was like, excuse me? God's sake. And like, I had snacks. <laughs> yeah. So I hadn't slept and I hadn't eaten. I was like, this was not how labour was going in my head. Um, also, I had snacks. Like, I'd come prepared. I had a whole bag of chocolate peanut M&Ms. I wasn't allowed to eat them. Um, so, but this nurse took pity on me and was like, you can't go into labour having not slept. So she was like, I will go and find you something. And... Let's, the, the reason you can't eat is because the if you have a reaction to the induction, you go in for an emergency C-section and it's better if you have an empty stomach. But this lovely nurse was basically like, look, if you're in a car crash and came in and we had to give you an emergency C-section and you just had McDonald's, we'd go ahead with it anyway. So she was like, I'm just going to get you some food because you're not going to last and let's just hope for the best. Turns out it was fine. She bought me a tuna sandwich. I despise tuna. Um <laughs> So she went and lovely, it was just such a lovely lady. She went and made me two pieces of toast with jam and a cup of tea. Um, and so that kept me going. So, yeah, they started the induction and then at about, um, I had a book. Like I bought a book with me to read during labour. I bought some specific labour reading books. So I was sitting on my Swiss ball in the little room reading my labour books, um, which was grand. And then they got to a point where they could see, I was about, I don't know, probably about nine or ten at night by this point, they could see on the monitor that the contractions were coming regularly. So when your waters break, they won't do an internal exam because they don't want to introduce bacteria once your waters have broken. Um, So she was like, look, I can see that your contractions are really close together. I can tell that they're getting a lot stronger. I'm going to do an internal exam because I think you're probably underway. Like She's like, I think you're probably five or six centimetres dilated. And I was like, awesome. So we got and took the internal exam and I literally heard her go, oh. And I was like, yes. And she was like, yeah, you're just one centimetre dilated. <laughs> so she goes, sometimes what happens when we induce people is the induced contraction should sync with your body's natural contractions. But she's like, yours haven't. So they're coming one after the other. Um, so she's like, so it, it feels like you're much more advanced into labour than you actually are. Sorry about that. And she was like, look, what we need to do is actually turn off the induction fluid, give you like a break, and then we'll start it again and try and sink it. Um, also, I had all these lovely like romantic ideas of like showering and stuff. You can't do any of that when you're in juice because, I mean, you can, but they've got to take all the wires out and you've got to get in and they've got to put them all back in again. And I just felt sorry for the poor nurse. Um, 
So you're basically just stuck to a bed, like you can't even walk around the room because you're attached. So at what point does Stacey and Robbie join you? I presume they do. Yep, they do. So we agreed previously that they would join me at the action end of the of the whole shebang. So basically when I got to the pushing part. And how long did it take to get to the pushing part? That was the three-day part. Uh-huh. Um, so they are just hanging out in a hotel, like trying not to message me, but also trying to message me because they want to know what's going on. So, yeah, so she turned the induction fluid off. The inductions didn't stop. And so she was like, look, do you want to have an epidural? That'll shut the induction down straight away. It'll also take the pain away. I had... I can't even remember what it's called now, but it was basically a birth, a labour, it's got a name. It came right through my back, so I had no pain in the front of me at all, but I felt like someone was just snapping my spine slowly one piece at a time. It was real fun. Why am I doing this again? Um, <laughs> <laughs> all women who've had babies seem to say, oh, you forget that, and yeah, you literally have. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I remember it, but I remember it probably more positively than I did at the time. I remember saying to the nurse, I can't believe my mother did this four times. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I said, great, let's have the epidural and stop the induction. So I had the epidural and then she was like, you should try and rest for a few hours. So I was like, that's not happening. Um, but then they started the induction in the early hours of the morning, I think around 2am on Tuesday morning. And they said to me, okay, we will check you again at six because by then you should be like three to four uh, centimetres dilated. Um, And then it was like, I don't know, four o'clock in the morning or 4.30 in the morning and I had a contraction and I kind of more to myself was like, oh, and the lady was like, what? And I was like, oh, no, nothing. I just feel like I can feel something. And um, she was like, oh, well, you know, it's only an hour out from when we were going to check you anyway. I'll just check you early. And turns out she was well on her way. So by that time I was sort of seven or eight centimetres dilated. So they'd said to me it's a centimetre an hour plus two hours of pushing. So I'd mentally add that up and said to Stacey and Robbie, right, I won't need you before 9am. Like, go have some sleep. We'll reset and go in the morning. Like, she's totally fine. Her heartbeat's fine. You know, it's just going to take a while longer. Um, in that time, they'd also gone in and done like a stretch and sweep. So what had happened was um, she had broken the waters up the very top with her feet. So sorry, sorry, question, yeah. stretch and sweep? Uh, where they go in and manually break your water and like uh, expand your cervix to allow for the baby to come down faster. Copy. So yeah, so what had happened was the baby had broken the waters up the top where her feet were. So obviously this at this point she was head down engaged, ready to be born, had been for a few weeks. But she had broken the waters at the top by her feet. But what had happened that between her head and the birth canal, there was a, a part of the waters that were trapped. And so to the baby, it wasn't time to be born because those waters were still there. But to me, the waters had broken your risk of infection increases and they start to kind of hurry things along. So, yeah, all of a sudden I had to call Stacey and Rob and be like, sorry, told you it wasn't happening till 9am, turns out it's 5am and I need you here now. And then the nurse came in and she was like, gosh, that happened really fast. She was like, you can push if you want. And I said to her, no, I cannot. Like, there are people that can't miss the birth and they need to have a shower. And she was like, okay. So she was like, why don't you just hang out for like 45 minutes? So when you do an epidural, there's also an hour where they kind of give you, I guess, time off because of the epidural. You can't feel the process of labour the same way on your body. So they don't want you to push too early because that can create problems in itself. Um, so they brought Stacey and Robbie in, or Stacey and Robbie arrived at the hospital. And, yeah, I said to them, look, we had kind of agreed that when I got to the business end that they could come in, 
by that time, I had like four nurses, two consultants, a doctor, a surgeon. And I was like, it's like Kensington Station, like they might as well just come in. <laughs> um, yeah, at the beginning, I was because, you know, a lot of my first pregnancy was during COVID. So I didn't have, I mean, Stacey and I messaged and talked a lot, but we didn't have a lot of personal contacts. So they were still, and you have this weird relationship when you're a surrogate where you're giving them something they really want and they really want something from you. So everyone's kind of like politely dancing around mm. each other. So it's not, you know, like a, a normal friendship where you meet someone and you're like, hey, you're cool, let's hang out and do stuff. It, there's always this big thing in between you and that, that thing is the baby. And because of the way New Zealand law works, that baby is legally mine. So that person doesn't in any way want to upset you because they are also aware of the ramifications if you have a ginormous falling out. We never had that, which was great. But, yeah, so I just felt that, I don't know, I wasn't necessarily, like, close enough maybe to have them in the room with me. But then when it actually started happening, I was like, oh, every man and his dog's here. Like, they might as well come in as well. Yeah, get your tickets, get your popcorn, roll up, roll up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I remember saying to a friend afterwards, honestly, every single person I worked with could have walked past one at a time at that point, and I wouldn't have cared. Um, so they came in. That was great. There was then an hour of pushing. Nothing was really happening. I was getting really tired. They were like, look, we think that you're probably too tired and it's time for intervention. Do you mind if we use forceps? And I was like, no, it's not my baby with a cone head. Like, get it out. Um, you know how I feel about heads. Yeah. So <laughs> I was like, smush it sideways and whip it out. <laughs> so... Uh, they had to cut me twice. Like, he was like, because of my cervix twists in some way that they have explained to me, but I've forgotten. But basically, he's like, we're going to have to cut you down and cut you across to create enough of room to pull this baby out. And I was I was of the opinion that I'd rather be cut than teared mm. because I'd read a few things and tearing sounds horrific, whereas cutting is obviously quite controlled. It's much nicer to stitch back together again. So I was just like... Honestly, do what you want. Like, cut me five ways if that's what it takes. Like, let's just, let's hand this baton over. <laughs> Slice me up. <laughs> so um, then they had to bring in two more consultants. Um, I also had a student midwife who was honestly the loveliest person in the world. So my midwife was like, this is a really interesting case for us. We don't see a lot of surrogacy for strangers. Do you mind if we have a student midwife? And I was like, no, not at all. Like, how do you learn if you don't get to be part of it? This like this little girl was so she wasn't a little girl, but this young lady was so lovely. I probably squeezed her hand off. Um, because I had made a decision not to have a support person there with me as well. Um, so it was just me in this series of when you're induced, you have to have a nurse with you 24 hours a day. So it was just me in this series of really lovely nurses. Why, can I ask, did you decide not to have a support person? Uh, so originally I had a really good friend that I was going to ask and then she accidentally got pregnant three months after me and I was like, this will traumatise the living daylights out of her. Like I can't, <laughs> I can't and with any sort of human decency now ask her to come in and, yes. and like my mum had offered but my parents lived like two and a half hours away and I was like, well, I mean, I don't really need you. It's not like it's your grandchild and honestly like Auckland Hospital was amazing. Like the nurses were fantastic there was this real interest in that I was having this baby for total strangers. And so I had all these other nurses popping in and out. Like I said earlier, my flatmate works at the hospital. So she, um, like after I had the baby, was bringing me actual food from the staff canteen. So it wasn't isolating. I guess that was my concern is you, you give birth, you hand over the baby and, and then it's just you there 
all by yourself. Oh, and then you get to have a shower, and that is the greatest shower you've ever had in your life. Um, so, so then, okay, so you're you're there, you're getting sliced and diced horizont- horizontally and, and all that sort of thing. Takes half an hour for them to set the forceps up um, and cut me and get it all ready, and then they go back in and they're like, oh, actually, in that half an hour that we've been doing our thing, you've done a couple of really great pushes. We probably don't need forceps anymore. We could fontoose them out, which is where they're like vacuum cleaner, suck them out basically. And they were like, do you want that instead? And I looked at the consultant and I said, is that going to take you another half hour to set up? (laughs) And he goes, probably. And I was like, just pull her out. (laughs) Because, like, I am done. And I was like, also, again, not my baby. Conehead will be fine. (laughs) So, yeah, so they went in with the forceps and and pulled her out at around 8.30 that morning. And I had decided not to know the sex because I wanted – that, like, there's very little you obviously get from being a surrogate. You give a lot. So I just, for some reason, got in my head that that would be a really lovely surprise. Um, and so they pulled her out. And I saw, I looked up from my, like, half-dead position on the bed and I saw the umbilical cord. And I went, oh, look, it's a boy. And Stacey and Robbie looked at each other like, oh, my God. Because they had been told it was a girl and they'd painted the nursery pink. Like, they had a girl's nursery <laughs> And then the nurse goes, no, dear, it's not. That's the umbilical cord. And then they snip that bit off. And I was like, definitely not a boy then. <laughs> mm. So then, so at that point, um, is the baby given to you? And then what's that like to hand hand over to Stacey and Robbie? Or did you? So it was really important to me that the baby didn't come to me. Um, not because I thought that would in any way complicate it for me. Just because up until this point, even though they desperately want to be involved, they can't. The second that baby is out, that is the first moment that that couple can get involved in that baby. And so we had very specific instructions that the midwife or the nurse it was at the time, my midwife was at a home birth and missed my entire birth, even though it took three days. Um, So the nurse pulled the baby out, Robbie cut the cord, and then the baby went straight to Stacey and Robbie. And because of the setup that we had we were lucky enough that the room next door was empty and so they had said to them you guys can go through there and you can do skin to skin so they took on a next like through to the next room the lovely student midwife stayed with me and she's like can I do anything for you and I was like oh my god I need food (laughs) and then I ate eight pieces of toast with jam because you Culinary options are very limited at Auckland Hospital. Yeah, please bring me anything other than a tuna sandwich. Yeah, totally. And I had had, um, for the last three months, I had had horrendous reflux. Um, and I couldn't eat chocolate. I couldn't eat anything with cocoa in it, which turns out is a really common cause of reflux in pregnant women. Um, once I had that baby, man, I opened that family-sized bag of peanut m ms <laughs> and I ate the whole thing. <laughs> and it was gone. And I had what's known as like a pregnancy cough for the last three months as well, where I constantly coughed. Very bad timing in a COVID environment. Um, but that went as, like, it was quite phenomenal. Like, she was born and every symptom disappeared with her. And the most natural, satisfying, incredible high in the world was to pass that baby over to Stacey and Robbie and see them finally become part of that journey and finally take what we'd all been working so hard to achieve. And a friend said to me the other day, like, what are you most looking forward to doing it again? And I was like, it's that. It's that moment where you realise you've made someone else's dreams come true. And not just their dreams come true, that affects their parents. Like, that's a grandchild, that's a cousin, that's a sibling. Like, that, I think, 
is the thing that would drive me to do it over and over again because there is nothing like that moment. It actually makes me feel quite emotional because, look, I know you got sick of people falling all over you and how wonderful what you were doing is, but that is so wonderful. I think when you are the intended parents in a surrogacy, there is a real fear that I think is very rational and that I fully understand that you won't bond with that child, that you're not carrying it and it won't feel like it's yours. When I handed that child over, well, didn't hand it over because I was like half dead on the bed, but when that child was handed over, in that moment, I could see all of their worries, all of their fears, everything just dissolved. And she was 100% theirs. There was no doubt in the room. There was just nothing. Like, it was the most natural, lovely thing on the planet. And then they went next door and had skin skin, and I had the greatest shower of my whole life because, man, giving birth is a dirty business. Well, the, the body's amazing, though, right? So your body's forgotten all the pain and trauma you went through, so you're going again, and then you had that euphoria and... Um, 45 minutes after I gave birth, I said to the midwife, no, it wasn't so bad, I'll do that again. She was like, you are mental. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of mental, but in the best most generous kind of way. But yeah, and then I never dropped it from there. So literally after I gave birth to Honor, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that again. That was great. That was such a simple, straightforward, easy thing to do. And I have completely changed a whole bunch of people's lives for the better forever. What about a few days later? Because most people go, oh, there's that crash, that hormones dropping off or whatever the baby blues or whatever you want to call it. Did you experience that? So that was probably the one part I was most, I guess, concerned about because you don't know what's happening. And I waited and waited and waited and it never happened. Um, And towards the end of the pregnancy, when it was 2 a.m. in the morning and I'd got up to pee for the 56th time and I was lying in bed, I would really ask myself, like, is there any part of me that wants this baby? Like, do I have any doubt at all? And the answer was always a resounding no. But even then, um, I remember talking to Tony's surrogate Sophie and she was saying that, um, you know, for her it was that idea that after she gave birth, she would wake up in the middle of the night and her body was looking for a baby to feed, but her brain knew logically it wasn't her body. So it wasn't like she was missing or grieving the baby. It was almost like a, a reaction. I had none of that. And I had a big conversation with my midwife after that. And I, I mean, there is no scientific research into what I'm about to say, but I wonder if having not had children, my body had no expectations of what that was. So I literally gave that baby over, went home and slept, stuck in hospital for two days after that. But um, after that, went home and slept for three days straight. And then I was good. Um, And then interestingly, I was talking to my mum further down the track and she said, no, I never got that hormone crash with any of you either. She said everyone talked about it and I kept waiting for it and waiting for it. So, you know, maybe it's genetic. Maybe it was because my body was like, oh, okay, so you do this and then you give it away and you go to sleep. Yeah, I can do this. So who knows? But it was it was super easy. Listening to you talk, and I already knew this about you because I've known you for a long time, you're very, very pragmatic. Um, do you think that there is a type of person that is suited to surrogacy or, or maybe – Is there a type of person who isn't suited to being a surrogate? Like, are you just the perfect fit because you are matter-of-fact, you put things in boxes, you get on with your life, you're not too emotional, I guess? I think there are situations that are better suited to surrogacy. Um, So interestingly, for this pregnancy, 
the head nurse was saying to the parents of this child, gosh, Kelly's like the perfect surrogate. Like, she doesn't have a partner. She doesn't have kids. Like, there's, you know, she's she's done it before. She knows what she's doing. Like, you guys are just so easy. And I think because there is a lot of the counselling has worked around how it will impact you and your family. So you have to go through a number of blood tests, STD checks, things like that. So does your partner, even though they're kind of not involved, so to speak. Um, if you end up on bed rest at 20 weeks, what happens? Who's looking after your children? Like if you can't look after your own children because you're carrying someone else's baby, how does that affect you? So I was lucky enough to be able to skip over all those questions. So yeah, I think, I don't think it's so much the person for surrogacy. I think it's matching with the right couple. And for us, um, the key really was communication. Um, and I know towards the end, Stacey obviously went on maternity leave because her replacement came in because she was meant to have a baby. Honor was also a week overdue. So Stacey had three weeks where she was on maternity leave because her replacement started. And she was like, we're about to have a baby, but I'm just kind of at home twiddling my thumbs. And I was still at work. And so there was like an increase in messages at that time to the point where like I just kind of had to say to her, hey, look, I will 100% get back to you. But like... Some days I'm in six hours of back-to-back meetings, so like it's not that I'm ignoring you. I've got another job. So. Yeah, it's it's not that I'm ignoring you. It's just that this is going to be, I naively thought, a day in my life where I will give birth. Turns out it was three days, but um, yeah. So I think it's it's being able to have those conversations and being able to have that really clear and open communication that I think is really key, and also I think understanding what you know, being hopeful for the outcomes, but also understanding the limitations. So I think I mentioned before that I've spoken to four people about surrogacy and only gone ahead with two. So the two people that I, you know, kind of not decided not to proceed with were people who, and I totally understand where it was coming from, they had had really, really rough journeys. They had had a couple of miscarriages. Mm. They had only kind of found out in recent years that they weren't going to be pregnant and they hadn't, I don't think, processed that grief themselves. And so kind of the need and the desperation of those people I knew would be too much for me. Mm. Like I was never going to be someone that wanted daily contact with the parents. or Like honestly, a large part of pregnancy is very boring. Um, like right now, every now, every three days I have to remind myself to be like, oh, hey, things are still going well. <laughs> when really I just forget I'm pregnant most of the time. Um, with honour, the morning sickness kicked in at about 10 or 11 weeks. So yeah, I That's was, to look forward to. Yeah, yeah, still coming. Um, so I was reminded at least once a day that I was pregnant then. But you honestly, you forget for large chunks of time because – it's a piece of your life, whereas for the parents, it's all of their life because it's going to change their lives. Like, having a surrogate did not change my life. Like, it wasn't a life-changing experience. It was a really, really lovely thing to do for someone else, and I'm really happy to do it again. But it was just a part of my life. Like, it, it I lived and worked in Africa for a year, um, and it was akin to that. Like, it was a period in my life where things were really different and... I got to experience some new things and I, you know, got to make what feels like a difference, but it is not all consuming. And so, yeah, I think if you, and I get asked this all the time, um, you know, like what 
how do you find a surrogate or what makes a surrogate? And I don't, I don't know the answer to that question, but I just think matching with people, I think you know really early on if it's going to work or not. So I've done this four times now and twice in the first meeting, I thought, yep, let's go, but you're the right people. So when I met um, Craig and Emma for this baby, yeah, I met them, I think we met in a cafe in Matakana, and within 10 minutes I was like, yep, cool, let's go ahead. Like, you guys are right, you're awesome. Oh, we wish you and Craig and Emma all the best of luck. I just hope it's not three days with no food this time. <laughs> I figure the second one has to come out faster. Like, I've stretched and paved the way. This one's surely just going to drop out. <laughs> So we have reached the finish line of the human race and at this point we like to ask all our guests four similar questions to just try and tease out a few of the things that you'd like to leave our listeners with. So question one, I really love this question, people love to offer advice on reproductive matters. What is the worst thing that someone said to you or the most unhelpful piece of advice? Oh my God, I can't believe you're doing that. I would never do that. Unhelpful. That's the so most unhelpful. the most unhelpful piece of advice. It goes nowhere. You're not doing it. I've made an informed choice about what I'm doing, and your opinion doesn't really matter. But thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so then, question two: What's the number one thing you'd say to someone struggling um, with this journey right now, whichever side of the surrogacy arrangement they are sitting in? I would say that the most important thing is to always have hope. So the parents that I'm carrying this baby for now, as I mentioned earlier, have a daughter that was born to surrogacy four years ago. They had five eggs, five fertilised eggs in the freezer, and they have been trying for four years to find their first surrogate can't carry another baby for them because of medical issues after the last birth. So they've been trying for four years to find someone to give Isla a sibling. Um, And she thought... She was home one night and she thought, I will post on the Facebook group one more time and if it doesn't work, we don't find anyone, then we're going to be really grateful that we've got Isla because she's perfect and it would be lovely to have a sibling, but it's not the end of the world. And I just happened to be watching at home, watching TV, still attached to the group from when I did surrogacy the last time, wasn't kind of actively participating but it came through as a notification on my phone. I read it, I clicked through to her profile, and I thought, hey, this girl doesn't look crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the family photos to see the size of the head. (laughs) Well, no, and actually, because it was during COVID, she had that big yellow badge. It was like, I'm vaccinated from New Zealand, and I was like, tick, tick, let's go. We're good to go. So, yeah, so that was such a random moment in time where we both at the same time just went, yeah, let's do it, and now we're pregnant. Such a great outcome. Um, Question three, what would you tell someone who is supporting someone going through the process? How are they best to help? I think that depends on the person being the surrogate. Like I said, I got really over really quickly all the, oh my God, especially from people I really didn't know, which I imagine I was lucky because I was pregnant during COVID, so no one tried to touch me just as well. Um, but I imagine that's like when you're pregnant and people want to come up and put their hands on you. Like when you're pregnant, you almost become public property, which I find very odd. Um, so, yeah, I guess your support depends on the personality of the surrogate. Um, I found it really hard post 
birth because I had to have quite extensive stitching and I was really sore that probably for a good week to 10 days it was really uncomfortable to sit or walk or move and when you have a baby I think a lot of people turn up with with gifts or with food or something because they think gosh you're up all night and so I didn't get that same kind of after response which is fine but there was because of the way I'd I, I had what was termed a highly traumatic birth, even though I didn't think it was. Um, but because of the recovery period afterwards, there was still a lot of stuff that was really difficult. So that's when you could have really done with the support. Yeah, and I, like, people didn't, I mean, people could talk about the birth, I was totally fine with it, but that's when it kind of would have been nice to have people pop around with food or, you know, and it is, yeah, and I mean, my flatmate was amazing, like, she'd come home every day and cook a meal and stuff, which I'm eternally grateful for, but some days that was the first time I'd eaten all day, because I was too sore to move off the couch the rest of the day. So, yeah, I guess there is still, depending on how the birth goes ahead, there is probably that afterbirth period is more important for the surrogate than the I mean you don't really have to grow a baby it grows itself you just kind of rock on and it does its thing um and yeah probably the the part when well personally for me the part when I was most helpless was after I'd given birth when I was too sore to move yeah, that's good advice. and the drugs wore off exactly um right to round us off question four um now the fertility fight can be very heartbreaking it can be intimate um but it can also be awkward and funny have you got any um memorable hilarious moments you can share with us the most memorable hilarious moment i had was i so like i was saying right through pregnancy they do blood tests and they do urine tests and they're checking for things like STDs and to make sure you haven't accidentally got pregnant before they put a baby in you and stuff like that. And so I had some blood tests um, popped to Fertility Associates and they said, oh, you were meant to have a urine test as well. Um, can you go back and get that done? And the lab test places across the road at Ascot Hospital. So I was like, oh, yep, sorry, didn't realise. Went back, said to the lady on the desk, hey, I've just been sent from across the road. Um, I didn't get all my tests. I still need a urine test. And she was like, what are we testing for? And I said, I don't know. I assume they're sending it. Like, they said they'd send it through on the computer. And she was like, great, I'll look it up. She was like, take a seat. So I sat down in this waiting room, which for that time of the day was insanely full. Like, there were 10 people in there. And there was no noise, like no radio. It was deathly silent. And so this woman's looking and looking and looking and looking. And so she gets on the phone. And because it's a small room, the whole room can hear everything she's being she's saying, and she said, "You know, I've got I've got a patient here." Like she was really careful not to say my name and stuff. She's got a, I've got a patient here, you know, and she needs some extra tests. And I'm just trying to ascertain what it is. And she's like listening. She's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then she said, and I swear a louder voice than the rest of the conversation. Oh, okay. So just AIDS, gonorrhea, <laughs> and chlamydia. Then great, thank you. And hung up the phone. And I swear every single person in that room like looked at me with a mixture of like horror or disgust or like amusement. I wanted to stand up and be like, no, I'm a surrogate. And they just check everyone for that. Yeah. Standard testing, standard testing. No. So yeah, that was hilarious. Well, despite what you think, Kelly, that this is no big deal, I think, um, especially as a couple that struggled really hard on this fertility journey. I think you are a literal angel. 
And thanks for talking about it publicly too, because who knows? Who might be inspired to make someone else's dream come true after listening to what you've done for one, and hopefully very soon to be two couples. So thanks so much, Kelly. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. You've been listening to The Human Race, a podcast from Wabi Sabi Media and Stuff. Follow the show on Apple, Spotify or any other podcast app. And please leave a review. It helps other people discover this important content. You can also listen at stuff.co.nz slash thehumanrace. We'd also love to hear from you. Email thehumanrace at stuff.co.nz and follow us at facebook.com slash thehumanracenz or on Insta at thehumanracenz. The Human Race was produced by me, Dan Higgins. And me, Nadine Higgins. Audio editing and mixing by John Ropeha. The associate producer was Jen Black. And executive producer was Chris Reed. Thanks very much for listening. That was The Human Race, which was proudly brought to you by Alibit. Support babies' healthy development at every stage. Always read the label, follow the directions for use. Vitamin and mineral supplements are not a substitute for a balanced diet. If you have a baby with a neurotube defect or spina bifida, seek specific medical advice. Bayer New Zealand Limited, Auckland. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You'll also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts.